welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are. Back again. With another episode. A more recent one this time. Yes, a 2014 Australian film. Also sad in nature. Very, very much similar sad. to our other more recent movie we've covered. I knew this one was going to be sad, just from what I've heard around the block. But I cried. <laughs> I literally cried. And not because I was scared, but because it was so emotional. This was a lot more emotional than I remember it being. I remember it being creepy, and I remember it being a really great allegory of grief and a really important movie about motherhood generally, which is kind of the reason that we sought this one out because Mother's Day is coming up and we thought that this took an interesting take on motherhood and even the idea of forced motherhood, which is very relevant right now considering all the things that are happening in the United States around reproductive rights and all of those types of things. But it's a great movie, yeah. despite it being on the more heavy emotional side. At least I thought so. Mm-hmm. And later, I know you're going to talk about some of the meme culture that popped up surrounding this film, which I've seen some of and maybe why I was a little bit blindsided by how sad this was and how emotionally heavy this was. But I'm so glad I saw it. A horror movie unlike I think we've seen for this podcast. Obviously, you know what it's about if you click the episode, but we are covering The Babadook, which is a 2014 movie from Jennifer Kent, who is the director. The creature design is definitely very interesting. That yeah. definitely lends into <laughs> some of the memification <laughs> that this movie saw after its release in 2014. In talking about some context for the film, this is through a conversation with the director, Jennifer Kent, in terms of the inspiration for this film. I have a friend who's a single mother whose son was traumatized by this monster figure that he saw everywhere in the house. So I thought, what if this thing was real on some level? So I made Monster, 2005, a short film about that idea, but I couldn't leave it alone. I kept coming back to it, and that led to The Babadook. She has also stated that Amelia, who is our protagonist, suffers from unprocessed trauma of witnessing a horrible death, and that it is up to the audience to interpret whether the Babadook is supernatural or psychological in nature. Mm. And I think that's some of the more compelling elements of the Babadook, is not necessarily knowing whether, you know, this figure that is cloaked with this top hat and kind of like the razors for hands, very Freddy Krueger style is real or whether it's a really crazy manifestation of emotional turmoil. I'm team emotional turmoil. (laughs) (laughs) We love emotional turmoil. Um, I'm definitely team emotional turmoil. Well, let's get into it. Okay. We open with an immediate flashback. Our girl, Amelia, who is played by Essie Davis, whom you might know from the Matrix franchise or as Lady Crane in Game of Thrones and many other Australian films and TV shows. She is in the middle of a dream sequence. It's sort of just her centered on the screen, surrounded by black. We're moving in slow motion. We realize that she had been in a car accident. She was in the car with who we can assume to be her husband, who was hit by an oncoming vehicle somehow. Then she wakes up from the dream. We can assume that he did not make it, but since she is here with us in the film, we know that she did. And she's woken up by her son, Samuel, who is in first grade. He is six years old. 
And he crawls into bed with her claiming that he had the dream again. So it's interesting that she has this, what we can assume to be a recurring nightmare. And then he also has a recurring nightmare. But what we can deduce from this is that Samuel was born on the day that Amelia's husband and Samuel's father died. So in Mm. that accident, they were actually on the way to the hospital to deliver Samuel when they were hit by an oncoming driver and Oscar who is the father and husband, did not survive, but Samuel and Amelia did. I mean, so traumatizing. (laughs) Like, how can you take an already awful situation and make it that much worse? Make sure it happens when somebody's on the way to give birth. We can tell that Samuel is having some issues, right? So he's having these dreams, these recurring nightmares. He's having trouble sleeping. And Amelia is empathetic. Like, she's understanding. You can tell she's tired, but she's not short with him. She entertains his need to have her check the closets, have her check under the bed. And then eventually they settle down for the night in the same bed together. And we can tell this is somewhat of a ritual. And Samuel is talking about how, don't worry, mom, I'll kill the monster when it comes. So again, this ritual, this maybe pattern of Samuel having this bad dream that involves this monster But Amelia reads a bedtime story to him. She reads The Three Little Pigs, which becomes important later, and they fall asleep. But you can tell that when they fall asleep that Amelia is exhausted by Samuel's Mm -hmm. presence because Samuel's, you know, clinging to her. Very much what you would expect a six-year-old boy to do after he's had a nightmare and he's sleeping with his mom. He's scared. But she kind of pries his hands and feet off of her and shifts herself all the way to the other edge of the bed. And you can see in an aerial shot that they are physically as far apart as they can be from each other on the bed. So you can tell she is feeling perhaps a little suffocated, exhausted by his needs and what he's going through and maybe even what she's going through as well. So you can tell that although she is empathetic of him and is responsive to his needs, She is very much seeking independence Mm -hmm. from obviously a situation that she did not anticipate being in on her own. Right. And her needs aren't being met, right? We can get the sense that perhaps she's been paying attention and putting Samuel first for so long. And because of the nature of her job, the way life has been playing out, she has to constantly put herself second. And that takes a toll on a person. So the next day, Amelia drops Sam off at school. After the baseball catapult backpack makes an appearance. (laughs) Yes. So this little lad loves to manufacture weapons (laughs) to kill the imaginary quote unquote monster that has been plaguing him. And yes, one of those is a catapult backpack of sorts. But that day at school, even though Amelia catches the catapult backpack and tells him to put it away... She doesn't catch that he's made a little arrow shooter and stored it away in his backpack. So when she's at work that day at a, I guess, like an old folks assisted living home, she gets a call. She needs to go to school to pick up Samuel because he was in possession of a makeshift arrow shooter. And this is an interesting scene. You know, we have a teacher who is obviously very upset. A principal is obviously very upset, saying valid points like kids could have gotten hurt but they're referring to Samuel as the boy, the boy. And of course, that upsets Amelia. It feels very dehumanizing to her son. She gets upset. She's like, you know what? We don't need this school. We're going to find another school. And his name is Samuel, by the way. Goodbye. And leaves. She doesn't seem to discipline Samuel right away. I think she feels empathetic towards him. I think she knows what's going on. 
We get hints that Samuel perhaps might be troubled by the fact that he doesn't have a father. He knows that his father was killed on the way to deliver him, which I think is interesting that he knows. Considering how private Amelia seems to be, I am surprised that he knows that at this young of an age. I don't know. And actually, Samuel reveals that he knows this information at the grocery store after Amelia picks him up from school. He is talking to a little girl. The mother comes along, asks something about his father, and he reveals, my dad is dead. He's in a cemetery. He died when my mom was on her way to give birth to me. And of course, the mother is like, okay, (laughs) bye. (laughs) It's also so interesting to me that it wasn't as if Samuel was at risk of being expelled or even suspended for his behavior. All that the principal and the teacher were doing was offering to give Samuel a one-to-one monitor, which a single parent, the more eyes on your kid that you don't have to have on your kid seems like a great scenario to me. But you could tell that she's wrapped up in this level of shame of maybe Mm. being inadequate of a mother and not being able to handle her stuff in-house. Maybe she's afraid that she might get in trouble with something that Samuel might Mm. say about her and things of that nature. So it, it was always curious to me about like, why was it that this was the reason that she was going to pull him from school? Because to me, like if my kid is troubled and I don't know how to reach them, yeah, please give them somebody. But I think for her, she knows that he feels so isolated and he doesn't want to feel more isolated because this one-to-one monitor would include isolation from other kids, which Mm -hmm. she doesn't want. But curious enough, the next scene is a park scene. So we have her and Samuel with Claire, who is Amelia's sister, and Ruby, who is Amelia's niece and Claire's daughter. And you can tell just through some dialogue between Claire and Amelia that Samuel's kind of universally considered as a menace. (laughs) For lack of a better term. Yeah, and the first part of the movie, he is a menace. He is very much coded as an absolute menace. Mm -hmm. To me, this movie is two horror movies in one. Okay. The first half of the horror movie is... Samuel. (laughs) Samuel. Yes. And the supernatural element doesn't really begin for a little while. So the first part is just this movie of this single mother who you can tell is very much doing her best, but is still somehow falling short of her son getting what he needs somehow. And he is also a menace. He's screaming. He at one point shoots a rock through the window and breaks the glass. He requires a lot of attention. And look, beautiful children sometimes require a lot of attention. But as somebody who doesn't have any children, and for this reason is not searching to have any children anytime soon, watching this and knowing this mother very clearly is kind of on her own in this doesn't maybe have much of a support system, even though her sister Claire is there. Claire's like a little bit of a bitch does not have the same amount of empathy as her sister seems to have, which is okay. You don't have to have all the empathy in the world. But this part of the movie was just very deeply uncomfortable. Especially because Claire is very much calling out Amelia on how she chooses to grieve the situation with Oscar, her husband. So we come to find out through dialogue with Claire that Claire says that Ruby doesn't want to have a joint party this year. And she's like, well, it's about time that you gave Samuel a proper party on his actual birthday. So through this, we're learning that Amelia really has a hard time celebrating Samuel's birthday because it is also the day of her husband's death. Obviously, that's traumatic everywhere you turn. And while they're having this conversation, Samuel is trying desperately to get his mother's attention. And this is something that happens consistently 
throughout the film is Samuel saying, look at me, mommy, mommy, look at me, look me, look, look, watch me do this. It doesn't work if you don't watch me. Look at this, look at this. And he ends up climbing to the very top of a swing set, like on the top pole, like the top support structure. That is where we see Samuel's first tantrum in the car, him like screaming, kicking the back of the seat, crying while she takes him home. And again, she doesn't really express a lot of anger in these moments. She is more so just stoic, taking it all in, pretending it's not happening. And maybe this is her way of accepting that Samuel does have grief for not having a father is just letting him have it. Because otherwise, it just seems a little negligent. Like you're not Mm -hmm. disciplining your kid. You're not showing him consequences for his actions. You're not correcting behavior. So maybe this is the only way that she really knows how to let him express what he's feeling. But on the flip side, throughout the movie, every time Samuel mentions his father, Amelia redirects the conversation Mm -hmm. and will not let him talk about his father, will not let him meddle in his father's things, will not let him speak of him in any productive way. So you could tell that her attempts to maybe help and almost let him experience his feelings, whether they be destructive or disruptive, are also harmful to him in that way. Oh my God. And again, the balance of parenthood. How do you know when you're doing the right thing? That's the horror movie. (laughs) How do you know? I don't know. So that night, as Ritual would have it, it is storybook reading time. Amelia tells Sam, hey, you pick out the book. And he picks out this random, looks more like a red scrapbook rather than a polished, published child's book. And it's a pop-up book called Mr. Babadook. And it essentially describes this monster as it flips through Starts out pretty docile, but then it becomes a little bit more terrifying. Samuel's getting upset, worried, is this monster going to hurt the boy? And then Amelia kind of skims through the rest and decides to shut it and put it away and realizes that she's just made her sleepless nights even more sleepless. She has kind of elaborated on this fear of a monster that her son has already had, given it a name in a storybook by accident. Yes, and to read a snippet of what the book says... So they are describing Mr. Babadook and how you can hear him through rumbling sounds and three sharp knocks, and then him saying his name, Babadook, Duck, Duck. And then it ends with, see him in your room at night and you won't sleep a wink. I'll soon take off my funny disguise. Take heed of what you read. Once you see what's underneath, you're going to wish you were dead. And this is characterized as a children's pop-up book. So obviously Amelia doesn't read all of those parts out loud, but it is enough to make Samuel sob. It's a little comedic. She's trying to read him like a happy fairy tale (laughs) and he is sobbing in her arms. And it's obviously like really sad, but Mm -hmm. like almost the lack of music or sound design is like a little comedic. So then later, Amelia is revisiting the book alone, and she is looking at all of these like pop-up features of the book, and we see the Babadook screaming, let me in, in like a word bubble, which again becomes a little important later. She sees that the book is unfinished. There's a lot of empty pages at the end, so it's like, okay, is the story meant to continue? Mm. Spoiler, it does. (laughs) But then we get a really relatable scene of her just like eating chocolate with the dog on the couch and just trying to watch TV, like get some alone time. Mm. And she sees an advertisement or a movie of a couple kissing. And this gets her feeling a little bit frisky. Mm -hmm. What does she do next? She goes upstairs, gets her handy dandy vibrator. Settles into bed for some business, and right when she is on the edge of ecstasy, her son 
bursts in the room screaming about a monster. He says, the Babadook is in my closet. Yes. And it's interesting because that is where she put the book so that he wouldn't oh, be able to see Oh, I it. didn't even catch that. Yeah, it's like a big <gasps> wardrobe. And she put the Babadook book on the top shelf of the wardrobe so that it wasn't in sight with the rest of his books because he was too short. He wouldn't be able to see it. Right. But that is where she put the book. So the Babadook is in the closet. So, of course... It's another night of staying up with Sam until he falls asleep. But he says a lot of really cute things. He is his mother's biggest advocate. And this is what broke my heart. Because when I watched this for the first time, when it came out years ago, I remember hating this fucking kid. I'm like, fuck this kid. (laughs) I will punt this kid over the next nearest fence. Like he is a menace. But whether it be through grandiose thoughts or whatever, he says things like, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I'm going to protect you. And it's just like so cute because you might feel like he's like the man of the house. Mm-hmm. And he is really realizing the threat that the Babadook poses at this point. But obviously, Amelia at this point thinks it's like, this is just like a scary book. I don't know how I ended up on my shelf. This traumatized my kid who's already traumatized. This is fucking annoying. But you can tell that, you know, he really cares and he wants to protect his mom. And then we have this very interesting, like, when the Babadook is evident, There's a lot of insect buzzing, like that's integral part of the sound design. Yes. And we have this weird time lapse where it shows Amelia sleeping with a lot of the insect buzzing and then her twitching. So it's like, oh, is she experiencing something or is like there's things happening that she doesn't know about? Yes. The insect buzzing also happens when the book is open. Mm -hmm. And the first time the book was open... And pages were progressing and it was getting more and more scary for Samuel and she shut the book. All of a sudden the buzzing stopped and I didn't even realize that there was buzzing because it had crept up ever so slowly, ever so slowly to a crescendo. Like I didn't even realize it was going on until the book shut and it was dead silent. It was so eerie. That was a cool moment. So we see more of Amelia at work and she has this coworker, Robbie, which at first I didn't like because he's like making this joke yeah. about like, oh, you're in the kitchen, right where a woman belongs. Hee hee. <laughs> okay. It's like, oh, no one's ever used that joke before. Exactly. <laughs> but Robbie's actually very sweet because Robbie, you could tell like is one of the only people that tries to chat Amelia up about anything outside of work. And I did note that Robbie looks like Oscar. Yeah. A little bit. He looks like a younger version of Oscar. Amelia is acting as though Samuel is sick because obviously she doesn't want to tell her coworkers that she took Samuel out of school at this point because that's not a good look. She also woke up late. Yeah, she was late for work. Mm -hmm. And she used that Samuel was sick as an excuse Mm -hmm. and was vomiting and all that kind of stuff. So Robbie's like, you know what? You should go home, be with your son. You only live once. I'll cover for you. Don't worry about it. It's interesting, though, because instead of rushing right back to Samuel, because Samuel is staying with Claire and Ruby for the day, she goes to the mall and just, like, walks around by herself and, like, just, like, eats an ice cream Mm -hmm. and watches a couple embracing, like, in the car garage. And you could tell she's just, that's what she needs. She just needs time where no one needs her, which I think is a way that new mothers are very easily, like, demonized. Because one Mm -hmm. of my best friends just had a baby, right? And Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that, like... Of course, you are so happy that you have this baby and you're so happy that, you know, you have this thing that you love so much that you made, that you produced, that you spent nine months cooking, you know, all that <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But then it's almost like the desire to have that being that needs you 24-7 to be away from you is almost seen as 
oh, why would you ever want that? And it's like, because it's a lot, <laughs> you know, because it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a lot to go from a world where logistically you might only really have to worry about yourself and maybe like a needy pet, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but then to something that like literally needs you to eat, needs you to change it, like needs you for literally, it can't do anything by itself without you. So it's like her having that free time to just not be around her son was like refreshing, but also heartbreaking to see because she's had to have been doing this parenting thing by herself nonstop this entire time. And it extra sucks when she looks at her phone for the first time in maybe an hour or so and see she has 10 missed calls from her sister who was watching Samuel when she was supposed to be at work. So she goes to pick up Samuel. Her sister is livid. I called you, you weren't even at work. Samuel wouldn't stop freaking out about this monster. He's scaring Ruby. So needless to say, Amelia gets him home. She makes him dinner. It's another night of the same old, same old. Samuel insisting that the Babadook is real. They sit down to dinner. And shortly after Amelia starts eating the soup she's made, she pulls a shard of glass out of her mouth. Instantly tells Samuel to stop eating, finds a shard of glass in his bowl, is very confused, makes a new dinner. But this, you know, is one of the strange events that start occurring here. Also in this scene, we see that Samuel has taken to liking the basement. And Mm. Amelia doesn't want Samuel in the basement because that is where all of Oscar's things are. But we see that Samuel, who loves magic, he has this magician on DVDs that he watches all the time, and he is putting on a magic show for all of his stuffed animals, and then a picture of his dad and his mom. Mm. And it's so cute, and it's so endearing. He's down there, he's like, don't worry, dad, I'm going to save mom. So again, he recognizes that there is a threat and that he is going to protect his mother. But then Robbie arrives with gifts Mm. and tries to say like, oh, here, Samuel, like, I always liked these when I was sick. And he's like, I'm not sick. (laughs) Damn it, Samuel. (laughs) Damn it, Samuel. But this is where Amelia finally snaps. He's like, no, you're just a disobedient boy who's so disobedient that you can't stand to be in school, can you? Mm. And then she goes downstairs to see that Samuel had, like, taken all of Oscar's things and, like, strewn them about the basement. Not in a destructive way, but just in, like, maybe a messy way. And she is very upset with him and, you know, confronts him about it. And Samuel's just like, he's my father. You don't own him. Mm. Which, again, like, Amelia accepts that Samuel knows that he has a dad, but doesn't really invite him to learn anything about his dad. Because the prospect of having to do that means that she has to remember his dad. And that's very painful for her. So that scares Robbie away. I don't know if that was a romantic advance because he also brought flowers. It seemed like he was interested in her not in a creepy way though but it did come from a place it seemed of genuine caring and then i don't think we see him ever again no but this is the first contentious exchange that samuel provides toward amelia because he screams i hate you you won't let me have a party or a dad damn so you can tell that there is some tension a brewing here so next scene Amelia finds a photo of herself and her husband, Oscar, on her bed, but Oscar's face is scratched out and hers has like demon horns on it. It's almost Uh-oh. like the way that like in Mean Girls, the way that you would like draw. In the bird book. Yeah, in the bird book, <laughs> like how you would draw in the yearbook of like the bitches you didn't like in high school. Like it looks a little bit like that. 
So Amelia confronts Samuel and like shows him the pictures like, what did you do this for? But Samuel sees the picture and then grabs his like little baseball catapult and starts to run past her as if like, oh, I'm going to go take care of this mom. Don't worry about it. It's so sweet. And then, you know, she stops him and is like, what are you doing? Because of course she assumes that Samuel did this. And he like pushes her back and is like, do you want to (laughs) die? But that ends. And then the next scene we see is Samuel confronting the wardrobe with his baseball catapult. And he's trying to look really brave. It's dark. You can tell it's after bedtime. And then we get Amelia's perspective where she hears a lot of banging and falling over. And the wardrobe has fallen completely over. And she thinks it may have fallen on Samuel. But instead, he is under the bed. And he is like almost catatonic at this point. Like he is like in a fetal position and very scared. And he just keeps saying, don't let it in. Don't let it in. Don't let it in. And then Amelia takes the Babadook book, rips it up, and trashes it. So the next day, Amelia wakes up late again to Samuel asking, do we have to go to Ruby's party? She says, yes. They go to this princess party. And (laughs) this was a funny moment for me. All the mothers there, except for Amelia, are wearing black business suits. What is it with ladies in blazers at (laughs) casual weekend events? (laughs) They are business. I called them the tactless mommy posse <laughs> because they are. That's all they are. Yeah. So anyway, just a funny moment. Inside, Ruby is opening up gifts. She gets a doll and says, I already have this doll, which I think is funny. She's coded as a little bit of a brat. But again, you know, she's a kid. Um, you got to give her some slack. And No, I'd punt her over a fence. Yeah. She sucks. She's not the best. When I was a kid and I was in the car with my brother and my parents on the way to family events, especially those that might have presents like a Christmas gathering, etc. My mom would play a game with us called Naughty or Nice and she would run scenarios with us and Mark and I would have to say Naughty or Nice. So one of those scenarios that frequently came up was you get a gift that's the same as something you already have before. And you say, I hate this. Is that naughty or nice? And we'd have to be like, naughty. So this motherfucker needs to play some naughty or nice. So while Amelia is interacting with these other moms, one of the moms makes a tactless comment being like, I work with underprivileged women all the time. And some of them have lost their husbands and they've also found it really hard. And it's like, what are you trying to say? (laughs) about this and then Amelia just is like staring at them blankly like "Uh uh-huh and then so they move on from her and she's just sitting in or whatever so then this woman goes on to continue like oh I'm just so busy like Russell's doing his merger or something (laughs) and I don't even have time to go to the gym for anymore and Amelia pipes up is like oh what a tragedy (laughs) not like that but she essentially to that degree is like oh that must be so hard for you you can't Mm -hmm. go to the gym Obviously, underlining, like, you privileged bitch. Like, who are you to talk about things that are hard right now? So Amelia's obviously, you know, black sheeped herself in this situation further than she already was. Those moms leave, and she's having a conversation with Claire, her sister. And Claire's like, it's been seven years. You haven't moved on. And she's like, I have moved on. I don't talk about him. How does that hurt you? Again, Amelia's way of healing is not speaking about her husband, Mm. not referring to him, and that's the way that she knows how to be okay in this situation. While this is happening, Samuel is hiding out in Ruby's treehouse because he doesn't want to be part of the princess party, which, fair enough, Samuel, I wouldn't want to be part of the princess party either. 
But Ruby just starts going in on him, essentially saying that, like, your dad died, so he didn't have to be with you. Oh, my gosh. And, like, you don't have a dad, and everyone else has a dad, and that makes you weird. And she just is, like, going in on him and talking about how he's the worst. And he, like, weathers it for a little bit. But the ceiling of emotional maturity of a seven-year-old can only be so high. Oh, yeah. And I even wrote down that the ceiling of adults in grief can only be so high. We don't see the first seven years of grief, right? So Claire in that time may have really tried to be a supportive sister. But, you know, Amelia says, like, you don't even come around to the house anymore. Like, you don't even really ask me how I'm doing. And she's like, because I can't bear to be around your son. I mean, that is something that I just don't think she should have said. I don't think you can say things like that to your sister. No. But <laughs> that conversation is broken up when Samuel pushes Ruby out of the treehouse and breaks her nose in two places. Yeah. This, for me, was a turning point for how I was looking at Samuel. Because now me as an audience member knows that this is a story that Samuel is trying to tell that is true. And that he was instigated. Yeah. Right? And that Ruby was partially to blame for how she was bullying him. You know, you just can't say those kinds of things to your cousin. And of course, he's not believed and he is punished and you can't help but feel bad for him. He has an anxiety attack almost to the point of a seizure in the car. That's right. He He does have a seizure. Yeah. Well, his brain overheats. Isn't that, what the, what does that mean? Well, he is taken then to the pediatrician and that's where we learn his brain overheated, I suppose. And Amelia asks if there is any way in between the time, like now, and they can see a psychiatrist, if she can please be prescribed something to help him sleep at night. And the doctor's like, I don't know, usually mothers only ask for this when it's really bad. And Amelia's like, it's really bad. Neither of us are getting sleep. So he gives them some kind of sedative to help Samuel sleep. He says, it should help you. I'll give you a week's supply. And she says, thank you. And I noted this because it's the first time that she admits that she's almost not succeeding as Mm. a mother because she's like, I'm really not coping well. Yeah. I haven't slept. He hasn't slept. I'm not coping well. And this is the first sign of defeat, at least that we know in the storytelling that she admits that like she can't help him and she can't fix whatever he's going through. So they have another nighttime sequence where she's trying to get him to take the pill. And he's like, I don't want you to die. And she's like, I'm not going to die for a long time, sweetie. Don't worry about it. And he's like, well, I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. I love you. And she says, me too. Like, doesn't say I love you back. Yeah. So you could tell she's almost at her wits end. And again, I'm not a mother. I'm not in a mother's shoes. But like, if a kid says I love you, say I love you back. You know, mm-hmm. like, say it back. Like, It's getting rough. Too. It's getting rough. It's like when you're dating somebody and they drop the I and I love you. Just Instead love of I you. love you. Yeah, it just drops the I. And you're like, that. it's over. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Whatever. Everyone's different, but yeah. <laughs> but it happens. Anyway. <laughs> Lila's. <laughs> Lila's. Lila's. Love you like a sister. So they sleep that night, but when they wake up, guess what's back on the doorstep? The Babadook book. After some serious ding dong ditching, then the book is back. It's all taped together. Very unsettling. But this time, there's an addition to the story. So the new pages say, I'll wager with you. I'll make you a bet. The more you deny, the stronger I get. You start to change when I get in, the Babadook growing under your skin. Oh, come, come see what's underneath. 
And that is accompanied by a lot of pop-up images of presumably a white blonde woman, which is what Amelia is, standing in front of the Babadook this time. So maybe that she is representing him to some degree. And then of this woman strangling a dog and a boy. And guess who lives in the house? A dog. (laughs) And a boy. And the finale being that this white blonde cartoon then kills herself. And the only point of color I think that we ever see in the pop-up book is the blood then that comes out of her neck in the book. Like a little pull tab. I thought that was really well done. I don't know yeah. what artistic what kind design of origami, did that. Seriously. Like paper magic. Really cool. So then she decides to, again, go full Mean Girls and burn the book. But then Samuel looks on very disappointed. So what does he know that we don't? Well, at this point, I think it's really starting to be obvious that this is about grief. Like, the more you deny, the stronger I get. Like, what monster would say that unless it's a grief monster? You know? I feel like most monsters, like, if I'm citing Monsters, Inc. by Pixar Animated Studios... Monsters get their clout by how many screams they get. That means they have to be in the forefront. This monster is getting his strength based on how much he's ignored. Ooh, I love that. Like currency based on how much he is denied. Like what the fuck company is he working for? Seriously. Must have some like side hustle with Randall, the little (laughs) slithery fuck. (laughs) No way. Randall is not smart enough to be a part of this motherfucking thing. It's almost like, you know how they had like Monsters University. I want to see what like... Oh, the Babadook should be there in a different class. Well, he should be there, but I also want to see like how like Monsters University was like a prequel to Monsters, Inc. I kind of want to see what like Monsters 2020 looks like, where they're all okay. laid off and like what they all do in their side hustles. <laughs> Wait, that would be such a good idea. Like, how do these monsters work from home? Exactly. Because well, like, Randall's like a fucking chameleon. He's a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. So like, what is he doing? Like, is he some sort of like undercover agent or something like that? <laughs> and is Sully like moonlighting as a sesame? place character <laughs> and is like mike wazowski working for like an optometrist oh like my that's God. what i need to see i need to see like monsters inc 2020 where like they all lose their jobs and what are they doing <laughs> wait this is amazing i love that so much let's pitch it <laughs> we get a when a stranger calls moment mm-hmm. except it's when the babadook calls and at least he like <sighs> tells you who he is because he just announces himself he's like Baba duck duck duck. Um, yeah, it's a little bit funny. <laughs> That's a little comical. But then it stops being funny. The sound just keeps getting louder and more shrill. It does end up being very disquieting. This is where we get our first visual of the Baba Duck. Yeah. Believe it or not, in the fucking police station of all places. Yeah. So Amelia goes to the police station because she is very concerned. Not only has the creepy book appeared on her doorstep again with an addition implying the murder of her dog and son and suicide of herself. She gets an awful call that is so upsetting. She goes to the police. She says, I would like to report that somebody is stalking my son and me. They left a book on my porch. Of course, the person at the desk is like, show us the book. And she says, I burnt it. She stays a little bit longer trying to convince him that something is wrong. She mentions the prank call, et cetera, et cetera. But then behind the man, she spots 
it almost looked like the hat and the coat hanging up on the wall. Yes. Like as if the Duke works there. He's just in his office and has just hung up his clothes on the coat hook outside the door. But she becomes paranoid and she says, never mind, and leaves. It's almost like he's like a chief of flashers or something oh. like that because he just wears his long ass trench coat. Mm-hmm. Like, Maybe this is his side hustle. <laughs> <Babadook> 2020. <laughs> he got a job in the police department. <laughs> so anyway, once she sees this, she retreats and is like, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna take my leave now. So then she has a conversation with Ms. Roach, which is her next door neighbor who has Parkinson's disease. She walks up to find that Samuel has been hanging out with Mrs. Roach and he's like, mommy, mommy, Miss Roach has Parkinson's and that's why she shakes like this. Oh, jeez. But it's interesting because of how Miss Roach- that's not the worst thing a kid could say. No, but it's the way that Miss Roach kid. reacts that is very telling of what Samuel actually needs. He wanted to know, so we talked about it. Right. And it's very simple, but it's that line of dialogue that could have mm. solved this entire movie where it's Ugh. like- he wanted to know, so we talked about it. And it's what Amelia doesn't do for him consistently. It's like, he wants to know, and she won't tell him. Mm. He wants to know, and she brushes off the subject. He wants to know, and all of this kind of stuff. And this is where Ms. Roach compares him to Oscar. Well, he's like, well, Oscar, he says what's on his mind. And Amelia's like, do you have to talk about him? And like, ushers Samuel away. So again, mm-hmm. Amelia's becoming unhinged. So we're inside the house. And Amelia walks into the kitchen. She gets to the sink and realizes there's a bug on her shoulder. Quick wipes it off and then sees that there are more bugs on the floor. I'm assuming they're cockroaches. I think so. So she follows the trail, sees that they're coming out from under the refrigerator. She moves the refrigerator, sees a split in the wallpaper, pushes it back. There's a almost rotten looking hole in the wall behind the paper. And all of a sudden these cockroaches start coming out and she is... Oh my God, I I can't even imagine. So she freaks out. She instantly starts trying to deep clean the kitchen. We see her mopping the floor. You know, everything is on the kitchen table. Everything's up off. She's trying to do all these things. There's a knock on the door. She opens it. Two suited folks, one woman and one man arrive and they instantly make it known that they are there because they are checking up on Samuel. And we can assume that I guess they heard about him from the school he previously attended that he was taken out of. Yeah. So they're there to just kind of see like, hey, what's up? Your son's been unenrolled in school and we need to see what's up. So they're the Australian equivalent to CPS, I guess. And she goes on to introduce Samuel and they're like, oh, Samuel, how are you feeling? And he's just like, I'm a bit tired from all the drugs my mom gave me. (laughs) Damn it, Samuel. I have a story about. Oh, wait. (laughs) another story okay so in first grade so it was like a mother's day project and you had to say like 10 things that you loved that your mother did and (laughs) i pissed mona off very much because (laughs) whenever i'm very irish so we would go to family parties and something my mom would often bring to you know adult parties was jello shots but she would always make like virgin jello shots for the kids with whipped cream so they would feel like they're a part of it right like they always thought that, that so like good. it was something whatever so then for my project one of the 10 reasons that i wrote of why i love my mom so much was that she made the kids jello shots <laughs> i was in first grade The thing about it is the teacher didn't even contact my mom. It was like, you know, open house night where like the parents would come and just see all the work that their kid did at their desk, like displayed. And my mom's like reading all these reasons. Her face just drops. (laughs) And she's like, 
why did you write that? And she was like, because you make me jello shots. Because I'm in first grade. I don't fucking know. They are jello shots because to you. Are, to me, they are jello shots. But then she had to go like corner my poor ass teacher and be like, I don't give my kid alcohol. <laughs> and it was, just, it was just very funny. So this like reminded me of like, oh, I'm just tired from all the drugs my mom gave me. My mom gave me jello shots. It's just like- <laughs> I love that so much. Well, she definitely gets embarrassed and she explains quickly, you know, these are prescribed. They're kind of like almost comedic relief in a way, just their facial expressions. They're not very intimidating. They are a little bit silly just because they help underscore some of the absurdity of the current situation. But she does try to explain to them, oh, I'm just dealing with a bit of a roach infestation right now. And she goes to show them the wall where the hole is and there isn't a hole in the wall. Oh, damn. This is why I'm team psychological distress. Exactly, because the bugs aren't real. They leave... And it's almost time for bed. And Samuel wants to go to bed. He does want to go to bed. But Amelia is like, it's only six. The pills aren't going to work. If you go to bed this early, you have to stay awake. Well, she's freaked out because she was looking across the street at Mrs. Roach and saw the Babadook standing behind Mrs. Roach. So, so now she's, like, using her son to help ward off the monsters. A little bit, yeah. It's just, like, <laughs> now, like, he's like, oh, I'll go to sleep. It's no problem. And she's like, <laughs> and she's like mm, no, I need you to stay up with me, Samuel, actually. We're going to watch TV together. I'm going to make you a Sunday. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what the heck? And you see him at one point doze off, and she just, like, turns up the TV volume and kind of scares him awake a little bit. <laughs> And then turns it back down. But she puts him to bed and then gets in bed with him. Again, she's still feeling kind of freaked. And then she starts hearing noises. Scraping. Mm. And then the door opens. And I I like to see that despite continental divides and despite age, the universal sign of I'm freaked out is I'm going to hide under the covers. (laughs) Because she pulls the covers up over her head. But then she pulls it back down and sees the Babadook on the ceiling. And the Babadook is characterized, trench coat, top hat. I'm not going to lie, his face is a little silly looking. Did we even see his face in that scene? No, we did. We saw his face. I know we saw his face in Mrs. Roach's house. No, because he like spins down, remember? Okay, okay. It's like, so he's on the ceiling, but then when he's on the ceiling, she screams and it's almost like he falls into her mouth. Oh yeah, the camera takes a dive. It almost seems like we're watching from the perspective of the Babadook. Amelia is obviously freaked out, wakes up Samuel, takes him downstairs, makes him watch TV with her. But wherever she looks, the Babadook's there. Like, he's on the TV screen, he's in Mm -hmm. these commercials. But then we're starting to see that Amelia is being adversely affected. So she sleeps in the next day, calls out from work, and you can tell from the conversation that maybe she's fired. Oh, you want to give away all my shifts? Why don't you do that then? Like, Mm -hmm. Like, something to that degree. But then Samuel comes in and is just like, mom, I don't feel good. I'm really hungry. There's no food in the fridge. I'm not supposed to take these pills without food. You told me that. I'm just really hungry. And she's like, I just need to sleep. I just need to sleep. And he's like, but I'm hungry and there's nothing here. And she whips around and is like, all you do is talk, talk, talk. Mm. And that's very reminiscent of Baba Duck, Duck, Duck. Mm. And she's like, if you're that hungry, why don't you go eat shit? Jesus Christ. Oh my god. I mean, I laughed. <laughs> I did also laugh. I was stunned. A smiling jaw drop was my facial expression. But also like, look, as a woman who needs her sleep, I watched this and was like, I don't know, 
that could be me. <laughs> like that could easily be me. Like if you are that sleep deprived and also maybe possessed by the Babadook, you know, anything's fair game. I've lived with Elise on two different occasions. <laughs> I can attest that you don't want to separate her from her sleep. No, ever since I was little, like if I get upset, all you need to do is tell me, go to bed. Go take a nap. Go take a nap, go to bed, and then I'll wake up fresh as a DC. So Amelia apologizes. Sam is cowering from her, is terrified of, of her. Of course. But then, you know, she goads him into being like, oh, we can go to your favorite fast food place. They go. But as they're driving home, she starts seeing the roaches again. And then she starts seeing the hands of the Babadook descend over the car. And that ends up in her crashing into another car on the street, her being berated for that fact, and then running away. She just does a casual hit and run. Yeah. No problem. And then the next scene we have, I just wrote down, I'm washing me and my clothes. <laughs> yeah, she's <laughs> she, <laughs> washing me and my clothes. She's in her really cool clawfoot tub. And even like her sweater, I was like, ooh, Elise would like this. Oh. <laughs> Is this woman me? You know that movie? What's that movie with Jared Leto? Mr. Nobody. Do you know that movie? Oh, I love Mr. Nobody. We talked okay. about this, yeah. Um, there's a character in that movie named Elise. And sometimes I would watch her and be like, is this me? Anyway, <laughs> is this woman me? Like every once in a while you see a movie character and you're like, hey, wait a second. See, like when I hear Elise, I think of Elise, the medium from the Insidious movies. Oh, yes. We should cover Insidious. We shall. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'll do a dramatic reading of Elise's lines. Let's do it. <laughs> but anyway, she's washing me in my clothes. She makes Samuel get in the tub with her, also fully clothed. And he's just kind of like, okay. Like, he is such a yes man. He's like, okay, mom, whatever you need. (laughs) Again, he's trying to problem solve. He's like, I can call Auntie Claire. I can ask her to come over. And she's like, Auntie Claire doesn't want to hang out with us anymore. (laughs) It's like, I don't blame her. And this is when he says, we can call Mrs. Roach. I don't think we should stay here again tonight. Yeah, he says that also in this scene. He also says, I don't want you to go away. Which is like, what does that mean? So she falls asleep and then wakes up to the Babadook screaming, there's somebody in the house. So she goes downstairs, finds Samuel on the phone, telling Mrs. Roach, or asking her if they can come and sleep over. So he's whispering on the phone in the kitchen. So she gets on the phone. She's like, oh, hi. Sorry, my son is so disobedient. We're fine. Obviously putting on airs. Based on the one-sided conversation we hear, it really doesn't seem like Mrs. Roach is convinced. Again, just based on what Amelia is saying, but she hangs up the phone and then grabs a knife and cuts the phone line. And is like, is this what you want to make me do to trust you? Is this what I have to do to trust you? Yeah, she's unhinged. Yeah, it's very upsetting. And of course, Samuel is on the verge of tears. He doesn't understand what's going on. And this is behavior that we've started seeing now from Amelia ever since she said, why don't you eat shit? But we know also it's not her. It's not like her. Exactly. So Amelia forces Samuel to take the pill to go to sleep again. But he doesn't take it. Oh, he pockets it? Uh Uh-huh. He, like, pretends to take it, but it's in his little hand. Oh, awesome. Uh So Samuel wakes up to Amelia holding a knife over him. She is in a dream sequence where she looks over to see Samuel on the couch covered in blood. Mm. And she goes to rush to him, but she realizes when she goes to rush to him, Samuel is actually alive and screaming, Mommy, don't! What are you doing? Mm. And she's holding a knife over him. Oh, my God. So she's beginning to realize she's losing control. Bugsy, who is the dog knows best and is not fucking with Amelia anymore. He is growling at her. 
dogs know best in terms of the vibes, and Bugsy is not meeting Amelia's vibe anymore, does not like her. But Amelia is keeping herself awake, and on the news, witnesses a news report that is describing her killing her son. Again, obviously it's not real, but enough to, like, scare the shit out of her. Shortly after this happens, somehow she is lured into the basement. So Samuel's sleepwalking. And he's like, Mom, you have to wake up. And she's like, but you're the one who's asleep. And then he runs into the basement door that's (sighs) wide open. So then she goes down, follows him, and then sees a vision of her late husband, Oscar. Oscar's hot. I was just about to say that. I cannot believe you beat me to it. It has been on the tip of my tongue all this eve. He is a gorgeous man. And he embraces Amelia Our hearts break, and he says that he will return to her if she brings the boy. Now, we know, based on, obviously, the tone of Oscar's voice resembling that deep, dark tone of the Babadook, and also that phrase, the boy, being very triggering to Amelia, who previously reacted to that in the movie, in the principal's office, she realizes that this is not real. And she flees, right? She gets out of there. And although she tries to get away, the Babadook ultimately, I guess, finally, like, fully possesses her. He comes down a chimney and, yes, like, enters through her back somehow. She's not looking at it. No, and she keeps saying, this isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real. She denies, denies, denies. denies, 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 denies. We see her almost like twitching, like watching TV. Like you can tell that she's fucking on edge and Bugsy goes down to investigate. And Bugsy's like, you know what? Fuck you. And it's like, won't stop barking. Trigger warning here for animal cruelty. Amelia's upset. She gets up. She tracks Bugsy down. I'm literally looking at Polly in the eyes right now. Oh, Oh, there he is. Polly is the dog, but Polly is okay. (laughs) Bugsy is not. Amelia tracks Bugsy down, tries to strangle him, but then ultimately breaks his neck and Bugsy dies. Yeah, he's like a little beach on something. Like he's a tiny dog, but still like he was looking out for Samuel the entire time and Amelia just fucking ends him. And it sucks because we also saw Bugsy and Amelia having a very strong relationship in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's always sad seeing an animal die because they're always the absolute epitome of innocence, right? Especially dogs. This next sequence, though, I was so excited to talk to you about. Okay. Because, so Samuel's watching all of this, and Amelia sees that Samuel's watching this and chases him up the stairs, and he locks her out of her room. And first, the voice is very Babadook-like, like, Samuel! Like, (laughs) sounds exactly like that. Um, (laughs) Open the door or whatever like that, and then obviously she goes back to her mom voice, and it's like, very manipulative. Once he's hurt, don't you want to get him to the hospital? You have to come with me. But then she starts doing some Tony Collette shit on the door. Yes, she does. Not with the head, but she grabs the top of the door frame uh-huh. and starts levitating and starts kicking that fucking door in. And I'm like, ooh, this is so hereditary right now. This is actually fucking awesome that she's doing this. Uh-huh. And she enters the room and says, you little pig. Well, because he pees his pants. I know. It's so sad. Because he's so scared. But then she starts digging into him. You don't know how many times I wished it was you and not him that died. Samuel's like, I just want you to be happy. Oh my God. He literally says that. And then she says, I want to smash your head into a brick wall until your brains pop out. 
And then he screams, you're not my mother. And then in big Babadook voice, Amelia starts levitating. He's like, I am your mother. Can we talk about the emotional maturity of this boy? To be able to stare this in the face and say, you are not my mother. So perceptive. That is one of the most striking parts of this movie is that this little boy can like look at what's happening and know like who his mother is and who his mother is not and still give her this unconditional love. I mean, it should never be on a child to be able to make that distinction, but it's just really striking seeing that in this movie, especially because children are, you know, so often also a symbol of absolute innocence, right? Just like oftentimes a pet is. So it's just very striking seeing that coming from him. And then he runs from her and she's like, run, run, run as fast as you can. So very intimidating. You can't touch me. I'm the gingerbread man. (laughs) It all comes back to Shrek. It all comes back to Shrek. (laughs) We get to see Samuel deploy some of his weaponry, shoots her with the dart, shoots her with the baseball. Home alone shit. Home alone shit. Home alone shit. Mm -hmm. Better watch out shit. So while all this is going on, Miss Roach, we can assume, has probably been hearing some things. You know, she is a very close neighbor. She comes over, knocks on the door, Amelia answers, there's Miss Roach with her beautiful angelic face, and she's just like, is everything okay? I'm just checking in. This is when I started crying, by the way. Well, yeah, because she's like, I know this time of year is so hard for the two of you, and I won't go on about it, but I love you, Mm -hmm. and I'm here for you, and it's like, oh. I was a mess. no. If- Riley wasn't watching this with me. I would have taken full authority over just letting myself fall. (laughs) Like, I was like, I should keep it together. But this, the beauty of this, and just like that moment of somebody reaching out and saying, I'm here. And of course, the allegory being very clear that this is about grief at this point, it was just very stunning. And you think it's enough to almost snap her out of it, right? Because then she approaches Samuel and is like, we're going to go sleep over Miss Roaches tonight. How do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. I haven't been good since your dad died. And this is the first time she says it. It's the first time that she says your dad died. Mm -hmm. I'm sick and I need help. Samuel's like tentatively trusting her. And then she says, I want you to meet your dad. It's beautiful and you'll be happy there. That whole like dialogue, I gasped. I was like. (gasps) Because you think it's okay. And then it's not okay. And then it's not. He also knows it's not okay, so he takes it upon himself to stab his mother in the leg. <laughs> Love it. Which, look, he clearly did what he had to do. He's like, I'm sorry, mommy. It's like we see him say, I'm sorry, mommy, when he breaks the window in the first scene, and now he it's had to escalate all the way to, I'm sorry, mommy, after I stabbed you in the leg. So he runs and he ends up making it down to the basement where he has some Home Alone shit trap set up. So he has a cord that he pulls to trip his mother when she runs down the steps after him. She hits her head on the lowered ceiling by the stairwell and she falls to the floor. What else does he do? What else does he have prepared? He like hits her with a two by four and knocks her out. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she wakes up and she is tied to the floor with many ropes on her ankles and wrists. Yes. And she is now like fully taken by the Babadook. There's no contesting it. She's like shrieking at him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, mom, I'm not leaving you. I know you don't love me because the Babadook won't let you, but I love you and I always (sighs) will. And you could tell that Amelia is fully possessed. She's like roaring and like shrieking at this point. And he goes over to her 
her to be like, you let it in, now you have to get it out. But then Amelia reaches up and starts strangling Samuel. But uh, we didn't mention this in the beginning, but there's a scene in the beginning where Samuel caresses Amelia's face and it's like the softest we ever see them Mm. interacting. Mm -hmm. But then Samuel, while he's being strangled, caresses Amelia's face. I can't. It broke my heart. But it's enough for Amelia to like throw Samuel away and thrash. And then she vomits a bunch of black goo. Very similar to our Hallow episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Collapses and then wakes up. Mm -hmm. She takes Samuel upstairs. She is apologetic. But then Samuel reminds her. What that you? What's the phrase exactly? You can't ever get rid of it. Like once you let him in, you can't get rid of him. Get rid of the Babadook, yeah. And so then we're kind of thrust back into this action. Yeah, Samuel is fucking like taken up the stairs at like supernatural style and is thrown pinball style against all of the walls. Mm -hmm. And then the bed starts shaking, and Amelia is trying to shield him. And then out from the darkness steps Oscar. Ugh. Again. And he's, Looking great. And he starts reciting dialogue that you can tell happened just before the incident. He says something like, I can tell it's just about to rain, which I guess he must have said right before the accident. And she starts breaking down. She watches as his head gets like fucking sliced in half, almost Hellraiser style. I had a problem with that. It was a little too... I mean, maybe that's what happened. I don't know how a clean cut like that could have been had in a car accident. Car accident. Yeah, it was a little hokey. Still, look, I am fully invested at this point. Yes. I am very upset. (laughs) And so is Amelia. She is is upset. (laughs) She is sobbing. The Babadook is hissing at her. But then this is where she starts to take agency of her narrative. She starts screaming, you are nothing. This is my house. If you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you. They scream in unison. You know, Samuel almost gets like dragged back, almost poltergeist style. And she, Mm. she grabs him again. And then the Babadook retreats and collapses and you just see almost like his cloak and his hat. She goes to investigate. The Babadook does like a last little rah. But then you get the point of view of the Babadook, which I appreciated where you're staring Amelia at the face and then the Babadook just runs into the basement and slams the door. So it's almost mm-hmm. like he's retreating to the place where he feels the most powerful in the house. Right. Ooh, good point. Yeah. And it would be the basement. Yeah. Shortly after this, we cut to the future. Two weeks later. Amelia comes to pick up Sam from Mrs. Roach's. Mrs. Roach asks how she's feeling. She says she's good. She got the stitches out. It's Sam's birthday. They are going to celebrate. She tells Mrs. Roach the party starts at whatever time it starts. She'll be there. Back at the house, Amelia and Sam are outside in the garden collecting worms. And before the party, Amelia and Sam go inside with the bucket of worms. And Amelia tells Sam, now go outside until I come and get you. As she walks into the basement. Very strange. It looks as if she's going to feed the Babadook. So she goes down into the basement where the Babadook now lives. And she places the bucket on the floor. And at this time, it looks like the Babadook tries to attack her. But Amelia takes a very calming tone. She pacifies it somehow, and the Babadook retreats into the corner and pulls his little bowl of worms to eat. Yeah, she's almost blown back. Like, you could tell that she's scared and that she's almost overwhelmed, but then she's like, it's okay, it's okay, you're going to be okay. And that's when the Babadook retreats. 
And then she goes back outside to meet Samuel. He does a magic trick for her. And this is the first time we see her almost gleeful, like very impressed with her son. They even do target practice with the dart gun, yes. which I appreciated. I loved that. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's getting better, mom. I can tell. And it's like, oh, like he's so perceptive. Oh, my God. I even now I feel my Emo- my the back of my eyes are all warm. <laughs> and then the movie ends with her saying, happy birthday, sweetheart. So again, they're celebrating the birthday on the actual day. And the movie ends. So what do you think? <laughs> I know you have some goodies for I us. Do, I do have some goodies for us. So... I like especially that the Babadook is still there Mm -hmm. to a degree. And there is actually a quote by the director, Jennifer Kent, about this. So she was looking for funding to help fund the film because, again, this came from like a short film to obviously like a Netflix release and things of that nature. So Jennifer Kent stated that American distributors were willing to help raise the budget on the condition that the Babadook died at the end. Oh, Kent refused (gasps) as the Babadook represents inner demons to her like mental illness or suppressed trauma, which stick with people for the rest of her lives. And she didn't want to give the impression that something like that could simply be killed and life would just return to normal. The movie was then financed by crowdfunding instead. Oh my God. Which I love because it's so true to life. Like you don't get over something like losing the love of your life. No, that never goes away. That's one of the comparisons, I think, to grief that is the strongest. Once you let it in or once it lets itself in sometimes, it never leaves. Right. Like you cope with it or you feed it or you confront it or you visit it. But like it doesn't leave. And I like how at the end it has its place in the house. It's Mm -hmm. relegated to the basement and she still has to go and visit it. And she still has to go and almost feed it and accept that like, yeah, you're there. And I have to recognize you're there, but she has to give it some of her energy. Exactly. But you're not going to take over my life anymore. And she tells Samuel that he can see it when he's older. Yes. Which I was wondering if that meant seeing her own grief or experiencing his own grief. Because he never met his father. And although he can feel the grief of not knowing his father or obviously the trauma of dealing with what was going on with his mother, I couldn't help but wonder if that was some kind of message of like everyone encounters the Babadook. (laughs) And it was so interesting that you had said earlier too of how intimately he knew the details of how he was born because that could have almost been his grief of knowing that like – yeah. He survived and his father didn't, but that was obviously an important plot point that moved things along. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe it's the fact that when he ages, he might have that level of guilt that obviously is not in his control. Like he was not an active participant of, he didn't ask to be born, like all Mm -hmm. of them to be conceived, like all of these things. But maybe that's not something, you know, a seven-year-old can conceptualize, but it's something that a teenager can conceptualize. So maybe it's like, yeah, you're going to have to deal with that when you're older and Mm -hmm. I'll be here when that happens. Yeah. I love that at the end, Amelia can finally return the true energy behind like, I'll protect you, you protect me. Like it really feels like she's able to return that. It's beautiful. In terms of the name of the Babadook, in Hebrew, Babadook means he is coming for sure. And it is also an anagram for a bad book, both of which are true. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Good job on Jennifer Kent for writing and directing the movie. So the Babadook, was that like a thing before this movie at all? I think there was always this idea of the monster. That's what was like the short film that she created. But then maybe like the verbiage of the Babadook, maybe it had something to do with her lineage, maybe it had something to do with. The idea that the book was so relevant, I don't know. Like, that's, like, the easiest transcription I've seen about it. Interesting. 
So something else I noticed was the parallels of this movie to the fable we all know and love, The Three Little Pigs. I am so ready for this. So The Three Little Pigs is the first story that's read to Samuel in the beginning. And as this movie was going on, just in pieces of dialogue and through some of the comparisons that are made, the movie takes on the same narrative structure as The Three Little Pigs. So... I prepared this ahead just because, like, my brain had, like, a moment and I needed to just, like, write all of this down. So, the writing in the Babadook draws parallels to the fable The Three Little Pigs, which is the first story Amelia reads to Samuel in the film. The consistent attempts of the Babadook to enter Amelia and Samuel can be contrasted with the attempts of the big bad wolf in the fable to enter the three little pigs' houses. The Babadook makes small advances, just as the big bad wolf does, but eventually is fended off when it meets a house that it can't destroy with its voice alone. Ugh. Just as the big bad wolf is burned when descending the chimney into the third pig's house, the Babadook enters Amelia for the final time through this method. (gasps) Again, he comes down the chimney. Oh my gosh. And that's how the wolf enters the brick house. (gasps) So in thinking of the houses of straw and sticks, respectively, fortified by the first two pigs in the fable, one can imagine similar futile attempts Amelia has made to fend off her grief of Oscar in the first six years since his passing. First, not speaking about him, and second, not letting Samuel speak of him. Once Samuel is old enough to be inquisitive and insist on the truth that he does indeed have a father and that that father is dead, Amelia loses the control of the narrative of her grief and thus must build her brick house, thus accepting the grief of Samuel and Samuel for who he is, to ward off the Babadook from eating them alive. And this is supported... (sighs) through some dialogue, some pieces of dialogue. So even the idea that the Babadook's dialogue bubble says, let me in. And then Samuel saying, don't let it in. That's mm-hmm. something that's like, let me in, let me in, or yeah. I'll blow your house down. Right. That's, yeah. The Babadook descending from the chimney, obviously. That scene where she Tony Collette's a little bit, Amelia changes her voice to try to trick Samuel to open the door. Because <sighs> that's what the wolf does in the fable Mm -hmm. is like oh i'm gonna trick you into trying to open this door before i destroy it and it never works she calls samuel you little pig oh my gosh she also says to him i want to smash your head into a brick oh my gosh then says run 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 as fast as you can she what (laughs) and then at the end she says this is my house and you are trespassing This idea of she has to fortify this house and fortify this space where she can feel safe so that even if the Babadook comes down the chimney, she can have that like pot of boiling water or that thing ready so that it doesn't kill her and her son. Oh my God. That is amazing. Well, I noticed obviously like the significance of them reading The Three Little Pigs and then I was just seeing these parallels just pop up and I was just like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. This is working. This is amazing. (laughs) And like, again, obviously it was some level of intentional by the writers. I just loved all of the like obvious in hindsight, but not obvious Uh in viewing that they really made to this. I mean, that has to be intentional. That is so awesome that you noticed that. I did not notice that. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so Shay did research about the Babadook being a gay icon, and she has given me permission to read them. So (laughs) the Babadook's new fabulousness seems to align quite reasonably with queer readings of better-known beasts such as Frankenstein and Freddy Krueger, wrote the New Yorker's Aaron Orby. 
Quote, like those other misunderstood figures, he originated in anonymity, shunned by the traditional folks whom his presence threatened. Fearing the creature's transgressive influence, his shameless oddity, his aggressive manner. The film's mother character attempts to burn his manifesto, only to learn that attempting to get rid of the Babadook actually enlivens him. Mm. His book reappears on her doorstep, replete with the brash self-assertion of most coming-out anthems. Quote, I'll wager with you, the monster writes, in that what-could-be-a-lady-gaga lyric. Quote, I'll make you a bet. The more you deny, the stronger I get. Oh, <laughs> asked about the internet's belief that the Babadook is gay by bloody disgusting's Fred Topple. Kent said, of course, I love that story. As for the memes and icon status, she said, I think it's crazy and just kept him alive. I thought, ah, you bastard. He doesn't want to die. So he's finding ways to become relevant. <laughs> and all of this is from the article the Babadook creator finally acknowledges her character becoming a gay icon by Julie Miller of Vanity Fair. That's so cool. But we had to recognize, because we wanted to do the Babadook a year ago during Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, he was so relevant of just being like this little, like, like this dancing. And at one point, he did reside in the closet. Mm -hmm. You're very right. I think it's the idea that he just represents something that is going to be there whether you continue to deny it or yeah. not. Yeah, he comes from this wardrobe. He is something that is demanding to be experienced and yes. demanding to be seen. And if he isn't experienced or reckoned with in a healthy way, then he's going to make himself known <sighs> in lesser or more destructive ways. I love that. I love the idea here that we're dealing with a monster who is demanding like a healthy mindset is so amazing. And just to clarify what I said, that's not meant to say that people who are coming to terms with their sexuality or their gender identity in unhealthy ways are evil or bad or are going to right, burn your house course, down. Of course. But it's just the idea that it will find ways to manifest itself in ways that are not good for you if you don't accept the ways that it is good for you and like who you are for who you are. Anyway, I think we see that a lot in like the horrible trope of the homophobic bully actually being gay. Right. Like shit like that. That's like a good point. which I hate, but like it's a thing for a reason. So it's almost like the Babadook almost like took that where it's like, you can ignore me all you want, but I'm gonna be here. <laughs> I'm gonna be, you can, you can keep me in the basement, but I'm, I'm a fucking be here. Okay. I really like that perspective. And we talked about this with Monsters Inc. And now here with the Babadook being a gay icon, like the idea of an entity becoming more and more powerful or even destructive, the more you ignore it. Like if you acknowledge it, see it, deal with it, focus on it, feed it, spend energy on it. Is it possible that this thing wouldn't be a monster at all? I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. So that's the Babadook. That is the Babadook. Not at all what I expected. I didn't expect the emotional roller coaster, as I have said many a time, but I do really like it. And I was really surprised with how touched I could be with a horror movie. Yeah, it was a lot better than I remember it being. Even just some of the jump scares and some of just the lighting and the sound design, like mm-hmm. I just think was like really, really, really well done. And obviously, I think it shows a more realistic and unidealistic side of mm. motherhood that a lot of people might have to reckon with, but it's not mm. what you see in movies or what you see on TV. 
you know, no one really expects to have to do motherhood or do parenthood alone if they started that journey with somebody else. So even just providing some level of empathy or catharsis to folks who might be sitting in that situation and dealing with their own Babadooks, I really appreciate that this exists for that reason. And that in a really weird way, the Babadook could be empathetic to people who are experiencing something similar. Yeah, I agree. This is a good one. I liked this. But I enjoyed that our source mentioned Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. Because we are going to be visiting a similar dream demon <laughs> our next few episodes. Yes, we are. We are going to be viewing and discussing the first three movies in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I am so excited for you all to meet Nancy, who is a wonderful final girl played by Heather Langenkamp, which is just a horror queen of the genre, of the industry, of the franchise. Like, she's just great. And Freddy is, in terms of, like, some of, like, the Mount Rushmore of horror, he's my favorite villain. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is. Okay. So... I just think he's powerful in a lot of different ways and he's funny, even though he's fucked up. (laughs) And we're going to start to see that a little bit just through some of his kills. But yes, we are going to be covering the first three movies in this franchise. And I believe all of them are actually on Netflix right now. So if you want to watch- Do some homework. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do some homework, watch along with us. You can absolutely catch up on the original Nightmare on Elm Street and its two sequels. There's like 10 movies in the franchise. We're not going to go through all that. We're just going to go through the first three because that's an arc that is important that we'll talk about for that reason. Yeah, that's what we're doing for the next month or so. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm super stoked. Yeah, this is one that we've always known we wanted to do. And it's also one that despite how famous the franchise is, I really don't know anything about other than what Freddy Krueger looks like. I'm so excited for you to dig yeah. into him. It's I'm gonna excited. Be great. So if you want to keep up to date on our release schedule or other things that are going on that might come about, follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Also, if you would like to reach out via email for any reason with suggestions, comments, feel free to email us also at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.